I've seen things people wouldn't believe. Maybe I don't care. Have a drink. All the gin joints in all the towns in all the world, she walks into mine. Didn't do it. Why not? The whole thing's been wrong from the beginning, and I feel dirty. Is there anything I can do? Please, Dix, can't you relax for a second? My name is Nep, Walter Nep. I was thinking about that dame upstairs and the way she had looked at me. He's looking at you, kid. Yesterday, this would have meant so much to us. Now it doesn't matter. What can I tell you, kid? You're right. You're right, you're right. Welcome to the Speakeasy Noir Cast, a podcast discussing film noirs of yesterday and neo noirs of today. Each week, we're going to deliver a discussion of our analysis of classic noir films, and occasionally we'll interview up and coming directors and writers of new neo noir films, all mixed in with our unintelligible banter. Your hosts for the show, Jason D. Morris and Carly Street. It's that time again, Carly. Are you ready to go? I'm very excited. Are you sound? <laughs> I'm very excited. <laughs> I'm practicing stoic excitement. <laughs> stoic excitement. That's great. That's a new term. All right. Thank uh, you. Speakeasy Noir cast with stoic exciticism, exciterism, excitism, excitement, stoic excitement. Yep. I think that's it. All right. We'll have to work that into Nonsense. the intro somewhere. <laughs> Nonsense. <laughs> Join us for stoic excitement. <laughs> And no sense. <laughs> oh my goodness! What have you been up to lately? It's a madhouse over here. What are you guys doing? Making soap. Making soap. Sweet. Bunch <laughs> of dirty people over yep. there. You need to soap it up. Yep, I'm gonna lie about the benefits of it and sell it to unsuspecting people. Sweet, just like everybody else owns a company in America. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think it's gonna in. be good. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to use my melt and pour soap base. I'm going to add some bejizzle. Bejizzle? Then I'm going to make it look pretty with a ribbon. And then I'm going to send Lily around. Perfect. You know, what you should yeah. do is those smoothies you were making a while back, you should make a soap oh, yeah. version. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, or my God. I okay. could just yeah. make people have soap on a smoothie. Okay. I've got, I've got a task for you. And this is a legitimate task, right? Oh, God. So can you make the soap out of anything? Like, can you can you put any ingredients that you want into it and it's still soap? Yeah, pretty much. Okay. So here, here's what I want you to do. Oh, I want you God. to make a line, a line of speakeasy, noir cast branded soaps, right? And each one that you make is one of the drinks that we featured on the show. So not what, only will it clean it? you. Huh? What do you want in it? I want what's in the drink. In the drink? Yeah. Ooh, whatever yeah, the, Whatever the drink is, right? We have little lemons. See, lemon zest, that's very good for your face. Yeah, see? And then obviously you can still eat them and get drunk. And it'll clean your I mouth. I mean, <laughs> if you were so inclined, yeah? I think that'd be amazing. My I'm mom used to make me eat soap. When I was naughty, she, she was like, or she threatened, I can't remember. She used to threaten to make me eat soap. You know, like when you're naughty and it's, I'll wash your mouth out with soap. Yeah. So that actually happened in your household though? Like, did you actually eat, eat soap? Yeah, I would never. There's a reason why I'm well behaved. Yeah. No, I had that happen once. My grandmother did that to me one time. It only took one time because that shit gets in your teeth and like, it's awful. That's horrible. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. I wonder how many of you folks out there had to eat soap? <laughs> Or will when I do my new line of speakeasy drunk soap. I'm telling you, I think this would be amazing. I think we might sell one, maybe two. Oh, peep. Is that it might be me and you buying them. <laughs> we'll have a glass of wine in the back. So it's kind of the same. Right. No, it's I agree. I think, it, I think it would be a fantastic idea um, and a way for us to actually have a, a, a little product <laughs> out there. You have to do the labels. Okay, I can do that. I I can manage yeah. putting labels together. That's that's my forte, and coming up with weird ideas. All right, <laughs> we'll do. Oh, we'll do them in the shape of a wine glass or a cocktail glass. Yeah, we could totally do that. That would be. Uh, I think that that's yeah. Whatever whatever it is that you can do. Like I guess it would depend on what the kind of drink was, right? Because you got the highball glasses. You got the what was that one? A hurricane glass or whatever. I don't know. I don't remember any other glasses. 
Can you imagine getting a complaint because somebody got fired from work because they smelt of alcohol? Because <laughs> they'd wash themselves with a whiskey soap. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> Let me smell your mouth. Why does your mouth smell like soap? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, my goodness. All right. Well, Carla, let's jump into uh, our drink of the night. Speaking of uh, drunk soap, um, tonight's drink is called the Valley Forge. Um, And you might recognize that name from tonight's movie, but I won't tell you what it is quite yet. All right. Uh, The Valley Forge consists of a sugar cube. Three dashes of Agnostra, Agnostra bitters. That's <laughs> uh, not going in the soap. <laughs> it has to. You have to make them true to uh, true to the drink. They have to be exactly what it is, and then whatever you need for the soap part. All right, it's got to be. Has to be. All right. So three dashes of the bitters, whatever how you pronounce that. Uh, two parts brandy, and then you top it with champagne. All right. So chill the champagne until it's as cold as Valley Forge. That's another hint. Add the sugar cube to a champagne glass, add a few splashes of bitters, and pour two ounces of brandy over the sugar and top with champagne. Now, just so you know, this isn't the the name of this drink has to do with tonight's movie, but Valley Forge is an actual place. Valley Forge is a national park that was a winter encampment for the Continental Army during the Revolutionary War. All right. Um, but that's, uh, that drink is actually featured in tonight's film. So I think that this actually sounds pretty good because I like champagne. I don't think, Carly, you said you didn't like bubbly stuff. Is that right? Yeah, I'm not really too fussed, but it sounds interesting. Yeah, because I know you like brandy. I try but, it. Yeah. Yeah, try it. So I think it's worth it. Yeah, I think this will be pretty good. I might, I'm going to, I think I'm going to, I want to do this. Um, <clears throat> so there you have it, folks. Uh, that is the Valley Forge, and um, I hope you guys try it out. It sounds amazing to me. Uh, Carly's a little on the fence, but we'll see what happens. All right, and look for it coming soon on our new line of Speakeasy Drunk Soaps, <laughs> made by Carly Street, <laughs> wrapped by Jason Morris. <laughs> I'm, I'm telling you, I think that's a winner. I think we got to. It's got to be done. I bet you somebody out there is already doing well, that. I managed to make Terry's chocolate orange soap, so, so it's, and it's uh, vanilla cool. coffee. Oh, now that I would deal with. I like vanilla coffee. Yeah. Um, so, so v- the chocolate orange soaps that actually have pieces of orange and chocolate in it. Yeah. Has coconut oh, in it and um, orange like zest. Wow, uh, you just ruined it with the coconut. So you can just cocoa. You can keep that one. Oh, no, cocoa. cocoa. Oh, I think it's coconut. coconut. I was like, what the heck? Yeah, no, not, I won't I'm be gonna, touching anything with coconut. No. Yeah, same way, except for maybe the, you know, a rum drink or something. I can do that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, folks, there you have it. That's the Valley Forge. And uh, why don't you stir up one of those while you listen to tonight's trailer? fascinating story but here's one that has everything the falcon had and more it's raymond chandler's latest bestseller the big sleep what a picture that'll make mind if i look at it sometimes i wonder what strange fate brought me out of the storm to that house that stood alone in the shadows as i probed into its mysteries every clue told me a different story each had the same ending, murder. Every instinct warned me to beware that something more dangerous, more deadly than I'd ever known before was in that room. And suddenly, I like that. I'd like more.
Kelly, why don't we take a break and listen to an ad from one of our sponsors? Have you ever found yourself looking at your Netflix homepage and wondering what to watch next? Or have you sat through a movie trailer and were still on the fence about whether or not you wanted to see the film? Join me, Pete Mitchell. And join me, Ethan Hunt, on Films and Stuff, where we recap and review the latest movies and television shows available for you to watch anywhere. We do the hard work of watching a ton of movies and shows so that we can help you figure out what's worth watching. We give our recommendations about whether a film or show is worth watching or not. New episodes of Films and Stuff are released every Monday and are available wherever you get your podcasts or at filmsandstuffpodcast.com. Subscribe now. Films and Stuff. There is no substitute. All right, guys, we're back and we're going to keep talking about this film. guys at home and girls and ladies i should say uh people at home all of the peoples uh that was the trailer for tonight's film uh the big sleep it's a 1946 film um it is an american film noir and it was directed by howard hawks it was the first film version of the 1939 novel of the same name by raymond chandler who's infamous for his books to noir films uh the film stars humphrey bogart as private detective philip marlowe and lauren bacall as vivian rutledge and before i get any further spoiling yet again our nutshell synopsis it's now time for carly and now it's time for carly's super famous in a nutshell synopsis Okay, so this one I need to explain. This synopsis has an explanation of the synopsis, okay? Okay. So I was putting um, street beers in the fridge and one of them wanted to be liberated. So it dropped on the floor. The bottle top popped off. (laughs) So the ceiling, myself, the sofa, and also my piece of paper that had the synopsis written down on it. Oh. So... So I'm kind of, I think I can decipher it, but if it doesn't quite make sense, basically it's the beer's fault. <laughs> it's, okay? always the, it's always the beer's fault. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what I should just say, sponsored by beer's fault. Uh, <laughs> sponsored right. by so- speakeasy uh, uh, drunk soap is what it drunk needs to soap. be. <laughs> Here's what you got to do now. Here's what you got to do now. You got to make a beer soap that has little bits of pieces of paper of your written synopsis. Oh, I could do that very easily. There you go. Very easily. I don't know if people want to shower with the the shards of my synopsis, but who knows? (laughs) Okay. All right. I'm I'm going to try. Okay. Okay. A wise cracking PI who relies on his wits over his fists unravels a labyrinth of plot involving blackmail, murder, and a ridiculous amount of dead bodies, while still finding time to accidentally woo almost every woman he comes into contact with. <laughs> that is true, isn't it? That That's one of those things. And you know what's funny is it's so, the way that they do it in the movie, it's just so natural. Yeah. After two minutes, it just falls into his arms. Like, oh, what? Yeah, it? right. <laughs> it's like, two minutes and in, and he's just like, "What? What? What's happening?" Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> he's just so used to it. He's like, "You're right." <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. Um, you know, I think that was one of the um, reasons why I started to like Humphrey Bogart. Honestly, because I, I don't—I know you recall me saying I never really liked him, but this yeah. movie was was the one that was sort of—and this is before I watched *In a Lonely Place*. But um, *The Big Sleep* was, I think, the first one where I was just like, "Oh yeah, okay, I get it. He's pretty cool in this." Okay, he wears his pants a little too high, but I get it. He's cool. <laughs> <laughs> never hurt Simon Cal, so I guess yeah. Well, 
That guy's attitude hurts himself. <laughs> <laughs> um. So uh, let's see this. Uh, this screenplay. Um, let's see. Was uh, let me find my notes here. Uh, William Faulkner, Leigh Brackett, and Jules Firthman co-wrote the screenplay. Um, and the film was introduced in the Library of Congress in 1997, uh, being deemed the film, being the film, <laughs> being deemed a film of culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant. Um, and it was added to the National Film Registry. Um, parts of now, I don't know if people, I, I know that the the film is known for having a very convoluted plot. Um, and I'll be honest with you, I never, when I watched the film, I never even thought about the plot being convoluted. I think I was no, just I so... Didn't. You I didn't, didn't even until I started doing research. And then I saw a lot of people complaining that it was complicated. And to be honest, I didn't notice how many dead people there were in it until, again, people started mentioning it as a fault. And I was like, wow, oh, yeah. Actually, yeah, I'm like, I'm trying to think of that right now. And I like, I only think, I only recall like actually seeing one body and knowing of two people being I think it's because they mentioned killed. that this, yeah, I think it's because they mentioned so many characters. Maybe that's where, where the sort of convoluted bit comes from. It could be. I don't know. Because I know there's this long history of um, people wondering how the butler was killed or, you know, whatever. But um, yeah, I, when I was, I was watching the film, like I didn't really, I, I, I don't know why it's, it's really strange. I'm usually really caught up in like the actual plots of things, but with this film, like I, I just really wasn't caught up in it. And I know that there's a lot of, um, talk about it being because of the scenes with Bogart and Bacall, but that really wasn't it. Cause I, I mean, those were okay to me, but I didn't think find them like they're all right. Um, I don't know. I know a lot of people like love those scenes and that's, that's a big deal. But for me, it wasn't really what did it. Like, I mean, just the library, not library, but the bookstore girl, uh, that scene is just fascinating. I don't know why, like it's really nothing happening, <laughs> you know, Except but, that she's falling for him. Just yeah. It's oh. just such a great scene and it's so natural. And she's so fantastic. And like that seems like that, like I, I don't care that he's watching, you know, Geiger's bookstore across street or whatever it is or why he's even watching it. It doesn't matter. Or, you know, it's, I don't know what it is. It's a really strange film um, in a good way because there's not many films out there where you can just not care about the plot and still enjoy the film, uh, mm. you know, as intended. But, um, Speaking of that and the reasonings behind it, um, this is something new to me that I didn't know until I was researching uh, the film for the podcast. I did not know that there were two cuts of this film. I did not know that the original um, unreleased version from 1945 uh, was was different and didn't have a lot of uh, Bacall in the film. Neither did um, I. Yeah, it was, that was very... Mm -hmm interesting to me to find out um, because if you think about when the film actually was released 1946 Bacall had already become a name um, and her and, and Bogey were already like you know they had already done a film together I, I think they might have been married by that time or, or were, got married around this time I can't recall I can't recall Bacall no. um, that was bad <laughs> Well, that's a soap right there. Can't recall the call. <laughs> yeah, you can make a bogey and Bacall soap. That's awesome. I don't yeah, want to get um, sued. Calm down. <laughs> oh, jeez. They're not going to see you. They'll be excited. You could use um, um, the bogey uh, gin. <laughs> <laughs> So, hey, Carly, why don't we take a break and listen to an ad from one of our sponsors? Picture it. It's 2004. You just put on your orange Fanta-flavored lip smackers, zipped up your low-rise jeans, and are about to ask your mom for a ride to the movie theater to go watch a Cinderella story. 
I'm Mo. And I'm Christina, and we are the hosts of Movies That Raised Us. A late 90s and 2000s podcast that dives into your favorite nostalgic movies. We're talking Princess Diaries, The Click, Confessions of a Teenage Drama Queen. We're sick of great movies being ripped to shreds by critics. I firmly believe that Uptown Girls deserves more than a 13% on Rotten Tomatoes. And Jamie Lee Curtis deserved a daytime Emmy for her Activia commercial. We love movies that we can watch over and over again. They make us laugh, make us want to travel the world, and make us grateful that we didn't have a coach dad a la Troy Bolton. So join us for a virtual sleepover every Wednesday where we deep dive into montages, unrealistic expectations, chunky highlights, role models, and the movies that raised us. Make sure you never miss a show by clicking the subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. And now back to the show. So I don't know. I don't know like how many people like knew that, I guess, uh, over time. They, I'm sure they discovered it from, you know, just common knowledge kind of stuff. But I still had no idea um, that they... So the story behind it, if some people don't know, like me, is that um, Bogey and Bacall were in a film called To Have and Have Not. And it did really well. And people praised their chemistry and on-screen performance and all that kind of stuff. And then Bacall went and did another film. I want to say it was like called The Conspirators or... I can't think of what the name was. Um, But she did another film right after it. Um, and it came out and they panned her like critics and the audience thought that she was just terrible in it. Um, and so her manager called the studio while, um, after actually after the big sleep was already shot. So, so the big sleep took so long in post-production, I guess, or they didn't want to release it right away or they were still doing test screens or whatever it was. It was already shot and completed. Um, And because of that, uh, Bacall's third movie, um, which she shot after The Big Sleep, ended up being her second movie. Um, And that was released first. And she was panned on that. And um, so her manager was really worried that it was going to hurt her career um, if she didn't do well in the big sleep, like she would be done with. So the studio at the behest of her manager, which is surprising to me that a manager would have that kind of power, but I guess they were that invested in this film. They went back and they shot a bunch of scenes with Bogey and Bacall to sort of ride that, um, you know, chemistry that they had and to have and have not. And, um, so virtually all of the scenes that you see with them, I think the originally there was like maybe one or two short scenes in the film and she wasn't really a main part of it. Um, but, um, a lot of, um, the scenes that you see in the version that most people have seen, um, has a ton of new stuff with them to sort of beef up that bogey Bacall um, sexual tension or on screen, you know, whatever it is that they have between each other. Um, and a lot of, uh, comments about that is that people have said, it doesn't really matter how convoluted the plot is. It was just great seeing them on screen and they really drive the movie. Um, and I thought that was pretty interesting. And I, I still have yet to see the 1945 version that doesn't have all of these new scenes because it's one of the very few films where people actually prefer the recut version to the original. Um, Cause nowadays it's almost like a, you know, jumping on the bandwagon kind of thing to like a version that the studio is, you know, suppressed and doesn't like, you know, want the audience to see for whatever reason. But this particular film, it seems the opposite people um, that have seen both versions prefer the recut theatrical release, um, which is pretty interesting. Um, so yeah, so they rescripted it and they reshot a bunch of stuff. Um, and, 
they actually, the studio um, restored the theatrical version and re-released it in 1997, which I thought was pretty cool too. I wish that I was into this stuff back then so I could see all these great films. Actually, I've, I've had the opportunity to see some of them when they come around or screened, but um, to see something, you know, as significant as like not having been in the theater since its original release or whatever it might be, um, that would have been fantastic to go to. Um, if only you <clears throat> liked Humphrey Bogart sooner. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, did you, did you happen? I know I'm telling you, it's true. It really is. Um, you know, and it's funny because like, as you grow up, like you find these things, like you grow as a person, you find the things that you're interested in. And I think rarely do new things sort of come into your life where you're like, Oh, I really like that. Um, especially once you're out, out of your like twenties, you know, um, I think it's much harder f- for people to like, I don't know, really, really find new passions, I guess. But, um, and I was yeah, really you go into, back in time, don't you? And just turn into your parents. Uh, shut up. <laughs> That's a no. <laughs> That's a no for me. <laughs> um but yeah so i don't know um did you find any out any information on the writing of this by chance i found a a funny little (laughs) little thing that happened all right are you laughing already i'm excited i I am it's i mean it's funny to me because it's just absurd but i was just gonna say is it funny or is it jason funny (laughs) (laughs) so as I said before, William Faulkner, Leigh Brackett, and Jules Firthman co-wrote the screenplay, right? So when Hawks decided that this was going to be his next picture and um, got the rights to the books or whatever it was and uh, started putting together his writing team, um, there was a new up-and-coming writer named Leigh Brackett who did a, a noir book um, called No Good from a Corpse. So... Hawks hired him um, along with William Faulkner and, and Jules Firthman to write the script. And when Hawks showed up to the, I guess the writer's room or whatever it was, uh, how they were doing it, he was very surprised to find that Leigh Brackett was a woman. So oh. that, yeah, that created some sort of like weird kind of tensiony stuff, I guess, apparently between them. However, uh, she did remain on the writing crew and there are some things we'll discuss later on about um, what, what she had contributed to the script, whether or not it actually made it in. It was kind of interesting, but I thought it was pretty funny because, you know, especially back in the fifties, I'll bet you that was a, a shock to have a woman writer. I don't know. I think it's pretty That was funny. <laughs> Oh God, that must um, be awkward though. Can you imagine that? But if imagine if like they passed the coat to her and went, Where's this Lee guy? It's me. Right. Chuckle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I imagine it is like just I, I just picturing the sort of fifties mindset and you know, women only being secretaries or whatever. I don't know how it was back then, but that's just what they portray on TV and stuff. Um, and in the history books, but, um, yeah, I imagine it was sort of like a, whoa (laughs) kind of thing. Although, you know, they did portray a female writer in, um, what was it? Sunset Boulevard? Uh, where he was like leaving and writing his script with another woman. And yeah, anyway, I just think that's, it's kind of interesting. So, hey, Carly, why don't we take a break and listen to an ad from one of our sponsors? If you're into Netflix original films, if you appreciate unpretentious movie reviews, and if you're the kind of person who knows that despite our political differences, we can unite over the love of a good movie or the abject loathing of a terrible one, then we might just have the podcast for you. Really thought we talked about not saying it like that. Like what? Okay. Anyway, the podcast is called Watching Netflix Without You. And to listen, you can visit our website for a list of podcast players, wnwypodcast.com slash subscribe. Seriously, like what? I swear to God. 
right, guys, we're back, and we're going to keep talking about this film. Yeah, um, I was watching a documentary about Star Trek, and there was uh-huh. a there was a female writer in the Star Trek room who had to go by her initials so that people didn't realize it was a woman. She really? Wrote, like, and that was the 60s. I forget huh? her name. Yeah. And I, I, she wrote like so much stuff, um, wow. but she was she used her initials. That's crazy. So. The world's a crazy place. Well, it's getting better, sort of. <clears throat> um, now, we've talked a lot about films of this period and censorship. So censorship strikes again in this film. Um, because of the Hayes office censorship code, sexual content was not allowed and heavily controlled. Uh, and the big sleep, uh, Geiger was, um, slinging pornography, uh, which is a big thing. You don't ever see it. Yeah. You don't ever see it. Nothing. You know what I mean? Like they're very, it's very, uh, you know, sort of under wraps. Like they don't even really talk about it. It's very, um, I don't even know how to describe it. It's so subtle, really, how they do it. And yet, you know, right? Um, Also, his character from the book was gay, which is something that they did not, you know, put into this film at all. It it never mentioned his sexual orientation. um, And they never showed any of the pornography or any of that. They only allude, alluded to it in a very extremely vague ways, which I thought was interesting because it's like, you know, nowadays we know exactly what's going on. I can imagine back then maybe pornography wasn't as, uh, I don't want to say well known or any of that, but I, I, I don't know. I don't know how it worked back then, but I imagine it was much harder to get a hold of. Way less people probably knew it was a thing or were a, a part of that sort of stuff. Um, but uh, I thought that might have, must have been sort of like a very controversial thing for this film. Um, but they did it in such a great, subtle way that I thought it worked really well. And it was, it was, it was probably better for it, in my opinion. Um, yeah. So, you know, going back to um, all the bodies, as you said, um, you, I'm sure you know about like the most famous plot hole in the movie right no <laughs> no. no i was because i was trying i was when i was researching it mm-hmm. i just kept coming across all the characters that were dead and then i lost my original train of thought <laughs> you ah. know when you go to google search and you get too far into it and then you're in like a different time frame with a different film yeah yeah no i hear you yeah, yeah. um so so the chauffeur right um oh you mentioned there's that. a scene no you yeah the butler, you said the butler i can't remember what it was something maybe it was the butler yeah so um there's a scene where bogart is called down to the waterfront and they're pulling a car out of the water and they imply that he was murdered right so the famous plot hole is that well who killed the chauffeur or the butler whoever it was uh owen taylor was the character's name um who killed him they don't say in the movie. It's never wrapped up. Nobody knows, right? So apparently, I can't remember if it was Hawks or a critic or somebody from the studio, but somebody wrote Chandler a postcard or a letter asking him who killed Owen Taylor. And Chandler wrote back a postcard and he said, damn it, I don't know either. Sounds like me. <laughs> right. So, so even though he re- wrote the book and, you know, all that kind of stuff, he, he has no idea who, who killed this person. Right. So for whatever reason, it was either tying up loose ends and he didn't circle back around or maybe it just really didn't matter. Sometimes people just die and you don't find out. And I think that's sort of, I think in my eyes, watching a detective movie or a show or anything like that, I don't think detectives always are able to find the answers. Right. And so I don't, it doesn't bother me that we don't know because maybe it doesn't even matter. I don't know. Other than the, like his family or whatever, you know, somebody's murdered and you know, you want answers, but, um, and detectives don't always get all the answers. They might even solve the case, but not have all the answers to all the pieces. So I, I was kind of okay with that, but I guess in the world of movies, that's, you know, 
uh, a no-no for most people. <laughs> well, I, I'm not that bothered about it either because it's kind of like you're not really watching the detective in this film. You kind of are the detective in this film. That's true. Like you yeah, see you know, everything that he sees. You don't you you don't see scenes that he isn't privy to and secretly know more than him. You kind of you just go along with him. Yeah. You know, that's a great point that you just brought up, Carly, because it does sort of remind you of So I'm I'm kind of okay with having like yeah. red herrings or things that don't really factor in because that would probably be like what would happen if you were a detective or PI, yeah. you know. Yeah. No, exactly. No, that's, that's a great point. It kind of reminds me a bit of Lady in the Lake, where you're seeing that um, POV for the whole movie, um, mm. where you are kind of the detective. So that's really great because you don't see that too often. You don't see where you're only following the protagonist for the entire film. Um, you know, and you don't see those other side stories, you know, that develop. You only get to discover with the, the lead character. So that's what a great idea, uh, concept that you yeah. came with there. I think that's. Well, that's, you know. I was thinking about it as well because you know the new Perry Mason series. Mm -hmm. I think I would have actually preferred if it if that was a bit more like that. So we just followed Perry Mason. Yeah, that would be interesting. The other stuff that was going on, I would like to have found him struggling on his own, mm -hmm. figuring it out. Yeah, no, not that's a good idea. kind of knowing. Yeah, no, I, I think that would be interesting to see. And even if you like, I wonder if I wonder what would happen if you take like the pilot of Perry Mason and you just cut out everything that he's not in. Does the story still work? Uh -huh. It'd be interesting. Yeah. Curious. Um, but also, um, speaking of the plot issues, uh, when they did do the reshoots and the re-editing of the film, the the new version, the theatrical version only ended up being I think it was either two minutes longer or two minutes shorter I can't really remember right however they did cut nine minutes out of the original version and shot a ton of scenes with Bogey and Bacall for the new version <clears throat> um, so even with that it only I think it only ended up being like two minutes longer I can't really recall but of that nine minutes they cut out was a huge uh, explanation scene where they bogey breaks down the entire plot of the film. Um, and yeah. So, so people that have seen that version have said that the plot is much clearer in that version, but they don't like the film as much. And I think that's odd. I think that they probably could have still included that scene, just maybe cut the scene itself down, but who knows? Um, Maybe there wasn't enough coverage or I'm not really sure what, but um, it's, that's an interesting thing to have people not care, uh, have a film where people don't care as much about the plot. <laughs> it's, it's a fascinating. They're just enjoying it for what it is, aren't they? I guess so. Yeah. It's, it's really fascinating yeah. because you don't see that with like Chinatown. Some people are no. upset like Carly about Chinatown where they just don't get it and it's confusing. Right. But we won't speak about that because Carly doesn't know what she's talking about because Chinatown's amazing. <laughs> um, so watch our two-parter or double episode. I can't remember what we did now <laughs> of Chinatown oh, to find eat out. Some, eat some to find out instead of watching Chinatown. How lame Carly is. <laughs> I'm kidding. Just eat some soap instead. <laughs> right. Just eat some soap. You won't like what she has to say. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah, it's surprising, you know, because people love Chinatown as well. Most people, um, but uh, it's also a fairly confusing plot and it doesn't get away with it as in the same way as The Big Sleep. People actually prefer the version of The Big Sleep that has a confusing plot. So it's interesting. Hey everyone, how's it going? My name is Anthony. And my name is Alvin. And we're the hosts of Before and After the Movies. What our podcast is, is a unique spin on the movie review podcast genre. Typically, you'll just hear a review of the movie, but what we actually do is meet up before we see the movie, give our predictions, talk about the movie in general, and some other things about the movie business. Then we go and see the movie. After watching the movie, we meet back up again, record a fresh review, post-show, comparing predictions, and talking about what we thought of the movie. So for you, it's a nice seamless five second transition. For us, it's a dirty five hour work day, but we love every second of it. So check us out on every streaming platform and here's a little taste of what we have to offer. 
it's time! Okay, out of ten. Three, two, one, eight point five. Family reunion. <laughs> now that's serious, Sandler. This is Goofy Sandler! Chris O'Donnell. <laughs> what the fuck is wrong with you? <laughs> we'll see you guys in three, two, one. You're listening to the Speakeasy Noir Cast, the show that brings you binge drinking with a side of noir, with your host, Carly Street and Jason D. Morris. There was a specific scene towards the end of the film where Hawks and Chandler had discussed having Marlo. So in the, in the end of the movie, the, you know, they're all like caught up in this room or whatever, right? And you've got, um, I can't remember her name, but we call sister. Um, uh, there, yeah. Right? I can't, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and Hawks and Chandler discussed having Marlo debate whether to send Carmen, Carmen's her name, yeah, uh, to her death. It just popped in my head, so weird. Uh, and basically put her out, out of her misery because she's like, obviously, like, you know, she's been abused. There's like all kinds of things that are wrong with her, right? Um, and Chandler actually died thinking that that scene was never scripted um, and considered it a loss. Uh, of the scene to be just like a typical Hollywood thing. Um, is that something that he kind of wanted to maybe, I, maybe it's to give Marlo a bit of a character arc, um, which he doesn't have much of in the story, which I think is okay because I feel like we're just sort of finding him in a typical detective day sort of mm-hmm. thing. Um, and that's kind of unusual for me to think that it's okay to not have a main character have an arc, but um, this scene right here would have given him a little bit of an arc. Um, but uh however so the writer of this scene so sorry let me let me back up a little bit because i'm kind of explaining this poorly <laughs> so hawks and chandler discussed this scene to have marlo sort of debate whether to purposely send carmen out right knowing that she'd be shot she walks out that building All right um lay bracket did in fact write this scene um but the scene was cut due to censorship um, so cool. Chandler the entire time was just thinking that nobody ever actually wrote it, that they were just maybe placating him, like this concept or idea. Um, and I imagine he was probably a little angry at Hawks for not actually doing it. Um, but uh, as we were talking before, Leigh Le Brackett, who Hawks originally thought was a man, she did write the scene. Um, and because of the censorship rules, it was cut out. And the reason being that the code would not allow the hero to send an innocent woman to her death. And oh. I just think that's freaking crazy. But, you know, I guess that's just yeah, the way it was. Yeah, they had very, they had their hands in the morality of filmmaking, <laughs> you know, because wow. there's all kinds of bad people in this world or, you know, gray area morals and things like that. And, you know, if the scene would have played out the way I think it would have been, it's really more of like, you know, um, a kindness kind of, you know, cause this woman is pretty messed up. Um, but anyway, um, yeah, so that was the thing. I, I wish that that scene had actually been shot and maybe they had taken it out later, but you know, it is what it is, I guess. Um, there's, did you come across any sort of like debate as to whether the big sleep was actually a film noir or not? Whether the big sleep was what actually? A, f- a film noir? Like there's some people out there that are saying that it's not actually a film noir. Oh, did I lose you, Carly? Hello, hello. Ah, there you go. You're back. All right. There's something's going on with our server there. Strange. That was weird. That was a yeah. long line of silence there. Sorry about that. I don't know what that was. I got a little message pop up from Zencaster saying that the server something or other, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> um, so uh, did when you were researching the film, did you come across anything about um, people saying that the, fil- the Big Sleep really isn't actually a film noir? Oh, I saw an, al- an article about that. Yeah. What do you think? How do you, how do you feel about it? 
Well, I've always just assumed it. I've always kind of like, because it's one of the first films that I've ever really seen. Mm-hmm. I've always associated it as one. Whether that's right or wrong, I don't know, but it's ingrained in my brain from an early age. Yeah. No, I kind of agree. And I, I sort of, I almost feel like anything with Bogey almost is a noir, even though like, you know, there's yeah. several that aren't, <laughs> but yeah. for whatever reason, his face is synonymous with, you know, noirs. Um, but yeah, I never really thought of it. And I was surprised to see that because I feel like it, it totally plays like a noir, you know, in a lot of ways, but, and, and it has like, it has the, in my opinion, like the lighting and it's got the look and everything, the massive yeah. rain scenes. And um, it's very claustrophobic as well. Mm-hmm. It feels quite claustrophobic in places. Yeah. You know, but people are like, the criticism is that it's considered too comical and its lead never really hits the noir archetype. He's always on top of the situation and never crosses over into the dark side, so to speak, which that scene, had they written it, would have sort of crossed him over into that. Um, and some yeah, say that would have taken that box. Yeah. And some people just say it's just a good detective film dressed up in noir clothing, which I can respect and I understand that. And you know what? They might be right. I think there's enough there to still make it a, a noir film, at least, it, you know, I know it's all subjective. Yeah. But yeah. So I'm not, uh, I'm not too worried about that. And I, I still consider it a, a pretty solid noir, in my opinion. We'll get one of them signs that says, The Big Sleep is, is a noir film. Change my mind. <laughs> right? <laughs> we should make a meme of that. <laughs> Post it on all the noir <laughs> Facebook pages. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so for you, Carly, like watching a film like this um, and seeing the way women are portrayed with Bogart in the film, like what do you think of that? Like I'm curious, like what your um sort of um uh interpretation or how did you react to having this guy every room he walks into ladies falling all over him is it misogynistic is it like what do, what do you think that is i i don't think it is i don't know people might disagree but personally i don't think it is at all i find it quite amusing but that again i'm quite a big fan of the of like Humphrey Bogart of like that type of character mm-hmm. and if that was me I probably would take my glasses off and start pinning my hair <laughs> but I just because it's done in a way I think it's how it's done because it is kind of treated with a bit of levity uh-huh. it's kind of like oh here we go again yeah right it's not it's not like they're not taking a woman out in the street and bashing her face in for being a woman it, it's it's a comical thing and women do do that do you know what? I'm not being funny. If no, I've never Thor met one. Damn it! Walked, <laughs> if Thor walked into a into a room full of women in a waiting oh, room, tell you what, you'd be walking over a sea of hair bubbles and pins and glasses and you name it. Yeah, but that's like I don't know how much of that is actually just Hollywood and like because I mean you might be an asshole. Like I don't understand. Like I, that sort of yeah, concept but they wouldn't of- think that far ahead they wouldn't think that all all the woman would think is do you know what he can keep his mouth shut that's all that would be running through the rad i don't under yeah i don't know i don't i don't get it. i yeah. i know i wouldn't be that way again you know to any woman that i see in a movie or anything because like i don't know it's all it's all fake to me but who yeah. knows and you know, I mean, it, it's just i think you just kind of take it i mean maybe i'm different though because i've grown up with carry-on films and stuff like that so i like i say it's all about how it's presented and stuff mm-hmm. and i don't I just think it sort of lends itself to his character more than speaks to a situation, if that if that makes sense. I guess so. Although, I mean, it's it is quite you strange quite how a strong woman in the cat in the film who isn't that way. Right, and I think so there's a couple of, of strong women in this movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but they do all kind of fall over. But the interesting thing to me is how self-deprecating he is. He's so like hard on himself, you know, like his, his view of himself, you know, not good looking, not tall, all this kind of stuff. Um, maybe that just adds to the, um, you know, I don't know, whatever, whatever sex appeal there is. I'm not really sure if that's a, <laughs> a positive sex appeal thing, but that is his character in this movie. He's very self-deprecating. Yeah. Um, I think I think it's more to illustrate that he's quite trustworthy because for that amount of women to kind of think 
gravitate towards him and for him to be the way he is being very sort of sort of thinking a bit lower of himself it's that element of ah and feeling comfortable and safe yeah okay i don't understand that but all right (laughs) i'm not sure somebody talking crap about themselves makes me feel comfortable or safe that definitely would not work for me if a woman was doing (laughs) that is not how to move jason oh oh, you need mental help (laughs) no i'm kidding there's nothing wrong with that either i'm just i i just i don't see that as like i mean obviously you can have um sympathy or, or even empathy you know for that but that doesn't i i don't see that as being like a um adding to any kind of sex appeal but i don't know again maybe that's that maybe that is the defining difference between you know men and women and their views or you know whatever who knows i don't know i thought it was interesting because <clears throat> they really they really pressed that home with him and his self-deprecation and women falling all over him kind of thing. Yeah. <clears throat> but uh, yeah, I'll never win any wars for being a ladies' man. So Bogart, go for it. <laughs> um, box office on this movie. It did really well. It did uh, 3.5 million domestic and another 1.3 million foreign, which for the time was great. Um, the critics' response was also great. Um, however, sorry, the critics' response wasn't great because of the um, confusing plot. Uh, however, they did love the like Bogart, Bacall scenes. Like they love everybody seemed to love that sort of aspect of it. Um, but there were a couple interesting. Um, there's one particular interesting review that I thought was, <laughs> I'm not sure I understand it, but I found it interesting. Um, somebody called it confused and dissatisfied. <laughs> just like, all right, I get that. But this other one was very like, I, I don't know. So I'm just going to read it. So uh, wakeful fair for folks who don't care what is going on or why. So long as the talk is hard and the action harder. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not certain what wakeful fair means. Like, cause in today's world, like you say, woke or, you know, that kind of thing means something. So wakeful fair might just mean like it keeps you awake because there's action. I don't know. But I always thought this like little quote was interesting. <laughs> and I didn't think that the action was like all that either. So I'm just kind of like, we're well, we watching really. this movie. <laughs> right. I mean, there's a couple scenes, but not, you know, there's definitely a lot of other films with way more action. Yeah. You know, so I'm not sure, but I found that to be a kind of an interesting one. <laughs> well, okay. Fair enough. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, there's something we haven't done too much, but I know something we really wanted to do. Uh, did you have a favorite quote from this movie? Oh no, I didn't know that we were getting quotes. Oh, Carly. Well, come up with one. Can you come up with one? Come up with one. You have five seconds. Can I have some hold music while my brain thinks? (laughs) I mean, that sounds like a kid's rhyme. That's Jeopardy. You don't know Jeopardy? Oh, <clears throat> all right. Well, I've got one. I thought it was pretty cool. Oh, okay. All right. And I, I, I watched this a couple of weeks ago, so I can't remember who said it. I think it was Bogart. Um, but I thought it was interesting and I really like it. And the quote is dead men are heavier than broken hearts. And I thought that was pretty cool. Ooh. So. Carly doesn't have one. Sorry, folks, but whatever. (laughs) Can I share yours? Yeah, of course. There we go. I do now. Okay. Panic averted. All right. (laughs) There's another one I thought was kind of funny, but it's not like a favorite quote or anything, but it was, uh, it seems like a nice neighborhood to have bad habits in. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so I thought that was a funny one. 
You should put that on a random street sign and just start leaving them around. No, we need to add to our drunk soap, right? They can also have quotes yes. on them. Yes. Right? So there we go. So we've got the drink for the film and there's a quote from the movie. Nice. All right. This is the thing. We got it. We're opening up shop. We are opening up shop. It's happening. All right. I'm going on Amazon to buy more ribbon as soon as we finish. <laughs> no, we got to find something, something noir related instead of like foofy ribbony stuff, right? Like a cigar <laughs> wrapper. <laughs> Ribbony, <laughs> not women-y. <laughs> oh, like a, like a like a bottle label. A bottle label, yeah, yeah. I mean, something like that's cool. Yeah, we'll definitely do that. Absolutely, folks at home, you're listening to history in the making here. All right, drunk yep. soap coming to a website near you, <laughs> bathroom near you, maybe your own. Maybe you didn't even order it and you don't want it, but we're but still going to send up. it. <laughs> yep. Yep. We could do like a little uh, murder mystery, but you got to buy several soaps to piece the clues together. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> nice. It's going to be too fun. <clears throat> All right, Carly, it's that time again. We got to we gotta give this a gen rating. All okay. Right. All right. Who's going first? Um, I, I don't care. I can go first. Okay. All right. So I love the big sleep and I'm going to just right out the gate. It's a 10 out of 10 gens for me. Um, I just think it's a fascinating, fun movie. Um, I love the setup of the film, just the quirky weirdness and walking to this mansion, this girl falling all over him. And obviously it's just strange and odd and, you know, the atrium and the sweating like a pig thing. And, it's all so interesting. The characters and the layers to all of these characters are so interesting to me. Um, and yeah, Bogart's performance, I think, is amazing. And But nothing is better, I think, than the bookstore scene. Um, and I wish I could remember her name, but I just can't. I think Morrow or... Um, I can't remember her name. But anyway, um, I thought she was just fantastic like whatever and i think she didn't do a lot but um for whatever and this short scene that she has was just a standout performance i thought she was brilliant and bogart just played right you know well along with her um it's just a great scene and just overall i just really love this film plot points aside uh for whatever crazy reason it didn't matter to me at all if i understood it or not i don't even know if i understood it i never took the time to sit back and think about whether I understood the plot or whether, yeah, I just didn't, <laughs> I still don't. And if I think back on it, I couldn't, I don't know, maybe, <laughs> but that's how good of a film it was. You know, um, I just thought it was just everything about it is just, it's solid. I just love it. Um, I, in this particular film, I don't necessarily know that the Bogart and Bacall stuff was something that really glued it together because it, with this one, I wasn't really as infatuated with those two. Like, I really think that the singing scene with her was, didn't really need to be there. Um, but you know, whatever it was fine. I, I don't think it, it uh, lost any points for me for it, but, um, you know, it's funny finding out why scenes like that are in the film. Um, but yeah, overall, I just think it's a great film. I think everybody should watch it and, enjoy it and uh drink uh drink a forge valley with it <laughs> by the way i don't think we ever came across that the the valley forge sorry forge valley the valley forge was um a drink was not actually named that in the movie but the recipe basically is a drink that um the guy that hires bogart um says is his favorite drink so uh, anyway, that's where it came from. In case anybody was wondering, oh. they probably weren't. <laughs> well, they so won't anymore. Go. They won't anymore. Now that I rambled so much. <laughs> All right, you're up, Carly. Okay, so I agree with pretty much everything that you said. Cool. I made it's it totally easy. Ten out of ten for me. Um, snappy dialogue. So much happening in, on such a short run time. So my first favorite film. Um, 
probably the first, I think it's the first Humphrey Bogart film that I ever watched as well. Very nostalgic. Nice. And 10 out of 10. Yay, we're having a lot of gin tonight. <laughs> I love it. I love it when we agree on stuff, unlike Chinatown. I love it. I think it's cool. I think the audience loves it too. Maybe they like us arguing. All right, folks, uh, there you have it. Uh, you got a 10 out of 10 from me and 10 out of 10 from Carly. So this is the uh, movie to watch, I guess, where we both agree on um, our rating, uh, which is very far and few between. But uh, there you go. I hope you enjoy your Valley Forge uh, along with watching The Big Sleep. Um, and we will see you next time. Bye-bye. He's looking at you, kid. Thanks for joining us this week on the Speakeasy Noircast. Make sure to visit our website, resurrectionfilms.net, where you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or any of your favorite podcast apps so you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, if you found value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. If you like the show, you might want to check out our book, The Dark Side of Acting Up, and The Dark Side of Acting Up Volume 2, now available on Amazon. Or you can check out one of our films, also available on Amazon Prime. Be sure to tune in next week for another episode of the Speakeasy Noircast.